You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. Thanks for tuning in to Mining Stock Education. I'm your host, Bill Powers. And in today's show, we're going to be hearing from Brian London. He is the editor of the Gold Newsletter to learn more about what he offers and is the New Orleans Investment Conference of which he is the host. Head on over to goldnewsletter.com. Brian, welcome back onto the program. It's been uh, many months. And let's start off with your commentary on gold. Uh, in, in particular, I'd like to know, what are you looking at uh, in terms of the, the bellwether sign for where the gold price is headed? Is, is it the interest rate on the 10-year treasury that so many people are referring to right now? It's a big part of it, yeah. You know, there's been three major influences on the gold price uh, over the last couple of months as we've gone into 2021. It's been the 10-year yield, the, uh, the dollar index, and uh, real yields, you know, uh, where they where they headed. Real yields and the 10-year have tended to, to move in concert, as you might expect, but uh, the, the real yields have gotten less negative as the 10-year yield has risen because inflation expectations have not risen along with the 10-year yield. So we really need those real yields to head downward consistently, uh, and they have not. Uh, today, we have, as we speak, I'm not sure when this is going out, but what's interesting today is that uh, 10-year yield has actually fallen, but the dollar index, which has been a bit impotent regarding gold uh, in recent weeks, has ri- is rising today. And so it's taken its shot at, at, at pummeling gold. So gold has not really had a chance because when one of uh, one of those three has eased up on it, the other one has, has come in to give it a pounding, which is happening today. Um, so yeah, those are three real indicators. What's, what has been interesting in recent days has been uh, gold has not been as reactive to the 10-year yield. When the 10-year got to 1.5%, gold sold off dramatically, as we know. Uh, in recent days, it, it hit 1.75%, but the reaction in gold was much more muted. Uh, I guess from one uh, from one standpoint, because that move higher in yields had no follow through, but also I think because the market's getting somewhat used to it, and uh, and gold, uh, I think is is bottoming right now or has bottomed over the last couple of weeks, kind of exhausted the sellers, in other words. Brian, when you're talking to high net worth individuals and money managers that don't focus exclusively on the gold or resource sector, are you getting a sense that they're worried about inflation right now? Uh, yeah, I think everybody's worried about inflation. The, the people I talk to are typically involved in the gold market, so they're worried about gold not responding to inflation. That said, we're going to have some remarkable inflation comps. You know, the CPI and and uh, the uh, the price deflator that the Fed uses, all of these are organized or developed in, uh, to understate the, the real inflation rate. There's an inherent bias in the system against reporting accurate inflation and a bias to, to uh, report lower inflation numbers. But that's going to work against those indices over the next month when we start getting year-over-year comps for March. And, uh, and seeing where we are compared to where we were at the dip, very depths of the, uh, the pandemic crisis. So we're going to get some shocking inflation numbers uh, over the next few weeks, really the first week of April. And the question 
at that point is, has the bond market discounted that already? Uh, probably has, maybe that's just a hope, but I think it probably has. So the reaction in bonds may not be quite as, as uh, severe or dramatic as what we're going to see in the actual inflation numbers and the actual inflation break-evens, which may see real yields actually uh, uh, head downward, head to more negative at that point. And, and so we might get a boost in gold and silver at that point. As you know, in the gold bug community, um, hyperinflation, we talk about it as a possibility and what that would mean for the price of gold. And there are a lot of price predictions out there on social media and through interviews like this about gold being multi-thousands of dollars, uh, multiples of where it is now. What do you make of that? You you give you know your commentary on where gold's at and where it's headed. You've been at this three, four decades. So what is your commentary for the average gold or silver investor, and they're hearing these seemingly outlandish price predictions, what should we make of it? Well, I think hyperinflation is an outlandish prediction. I've heard that from the podium of our New Orleans Investment Conference and other conferences, as you say, for for decades, and we've never had hyperinflation. I think it would be very difficult for the U.S. to have hyperinflation. If we did, then the rest of the world is just going to be in flames. So we may still look good on a relative basis, but I think you don't, uh, it's not likely that we'll have hyperinflation in the U.S. I don't think they'll let, let it get to that point, but I don't think we need that. There's so many other indicators that point to a gold price in the multi-thousands. Uh, for one thing, just look at the money supply. You know, the classic argument these days, if you look at various percentages of a backing of, say, M2 and what that would imply for a uh, the price of gold, and you get up to eight, ten, twelve thousand dollars an ounce if you had just a 20 to 40 percent backing of M2 with gold. If you look at it from other uh, angles. Um, if you say consider that from September of 1976 to January of 1980, and really over the last two years of that time span, you saw the price of gold go up about eightfold. If you look at the last run in gold from say $252 in 2000 to $1920 in 2011, it went up about eightfold in, in that run. If you look at the low for this cycle, the 2015 uh, lows, we were at about $1,040. If you say this is another secular bull run like we saw in those two previous instances, it's very likely gold's going to go up seven or eight times in value, which by itself would imply our seven, uh, seven to $8,000 gold price at the end of whatever um, cycle we're in, whatever process we're in right now. Tier 1 Silver is a Canadian precious metals company focused on the exploration and discovery of world-class silver and gold deposits in Peru. The company's management team has a record of monetizing exploration successes and a strong ability to raise capital. Tier 1 has assembled a portfolio of assets in Peru including Amelia, Coastal Batholith, the Wheel Aicoyo project, and the flagship silver gold project Curibaya, which is rapidly advancing towards its first drill program. Tier 1's listing is pending on the TSX Venture Exchange under the ticker TSLV. To learn more and to stay updated, go to tier1silver.com. That's tier1silver.com. And Michael Oliver has made a similar argument. Have you heard him say that that eight no, to I haven't. Yep. 
Yeah, he said that on my show recently, and his price prediction was about eight to nine thousand dollar gold within the next two years. And I've pointed out to people that he doesn't just throw those numbers out. At least I haven't observed him, you know, just for the sake of a headline or to get newsletter subscriptions. There's actually a rationale behind it. Yeah, well, he sounds brilliant then to me. Uh, <laughs> two years, I think, might be a, a bit soon. But then again, if we look at the last low being in 2015. The last run lasted 11 years. So, you know, we could be looking at 2026, 2025 uh, for that, which isn't amazingly that far away for, for that kind of a reaction. And whatever happens, we are heading toward a, a reckoning right now. Uh, you know, my friend Peter Schiff talks about this being the, the end all um, of, of that, that whole process and that the dollar will be destroyed as a result of this. But I don't know, frankly. I don't know whether we're going to have another boom-bust cycle and the Fed's going to come in with just, you know, whatever can boggle our, our minds more than they've been boggled already as far as liquidity. Uh, they may be able to rescue it again and maybe the next cycle where we see the dollar lose all credibility. But it is a process and we're closer to the end than the beginning. Um, and, and I don't know whether it's this time or whether we're going to have another boom-bust cycle or maybe one after that. But the dollar is rapidly losing its credibility and it's one saving grace is the fact that it's the, um, you know, the cleanest shirt in the laundry. Uh, it's, you know, the best house on a on a lousy block. The prettiest uh, mare in the slaughterhouse, as your friend Doug Casey says, right? Yeah, um, the one that I thought that I liked the best was the best looking leper in the colony. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's the one thing, face it, that's saving the dollar is the fact that we're all fiat currencies are in the same boat. They, they've all created these huge debts. Uh, but, you know, I think that's going to help gold and silver in the long term, because if all the currencies are in the same boat and they all have to devalue, what's left of them to, to devalue against? And that's, you know, gold, silver and and other tangible assets. Yep, and Brian, in my own investing, I have the physical precious metals and then I jump right into the speculative junior gold and silver stocks. So let's talk about that. I had a question I wanted to throw out to you and get your uh, multi-decade uh, experience, your advice on. When you are looking at a junior resource opportunity and it just looks so good, it looks so obvious, so asymmetrical, and you're saying, you know, nobody knows about this thing, it's going to go up. It has to go up. Even if it just goes up a little, it's going to be a three or four bagger for me. It could be a 20 bagger. When you see an opportunity like that, do you put all your eggs in one basket? Do you bet bigger? Because many small cap speculators uh, advise that find your edge. And when you have that edge, that knowledge edge, bet big on those outsized opportunities, because if you spread it too wide, you're actually working against all the knowledge and effort you're devoting to the, this little sector. Uh, what, what is your advice and thoughts here? Well, all those decades of experience have taught me humility. And as much as I believe in something, it, it and you know, it can all be right, but bad things happen to good people. And it is a numbers game. So that's uh, a big lesson is there's no sure thing in junior mining. If you're looking at 10 and 20 bagger potential, you're typically looking at exploration stocks. And of all the sectors in the world, you know, if there's anything that's not a sure thing, it's exploration stocks. And, and so you just don't know until the drills are turning. 
in uh, finding something. And until further drills turn and find more of that, you really just don't know. So I don't go that big. I go bigger in some plays than others. When I think it's a really good group, when I think I'm getting in fairly early before the market's in other words, there are external factors other than the luck of Mother Nature, the fortunes of Mother Nature, uh, which we can't tell. There are other factors that are arguing in that favor. Then I'll go bigger. But generally, um, I, 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 you know, typically don't put more than, say, one to two percent of my overall portfolio value in a specific private placement or a specific stock. And um, and that's, you know, that's about it. I like to spread it around a little bit. It also means if you're in a lot of plays, well, number one, your odds, you're putting, you have better odds of getting a, a, a winner, um, but you also have a, a better chance of, of having a big discovery that you're in on. And there's nothing worse than the junior mining. There are a few things worse, I guess. But one of the bad things in junior mining is when somebody else makes a big discovery and you and you don't own that stock and you just, you know, you're kicking yourself. Uh, so it's good to have a, uh, a toe in a few different pools, as it were. And uh, and I like to spread it around a good bit. So if you initially allocate one to two percent of your portfolio to any one given position, if that position is successful, there's a discovery. At what percentage of your portfolio, when that thing begins to grow, do you then force yourself to trim out of that position? I'm not very good on selling, uh, frankly. I'm 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 pretty good on buying. I'm not that good on selling. Uh, it's something I always fight because you get stuck into you know the emotions of the story, et cetera. So. Uh, I don't usually force myself. I don't have an arbitrary, uh, you know, Casey free ride kind of a thing. For one thing, if a stock doubles, if you want to have a free ride, it really has to pretty much triple when you account for capital gains taxes and the like, especially if it's, you know, under a year in the U.S. So um, I don't have those arbitrary caps. I, I try to reexamine the story and I'm a lot better, I have to say now, about getting my risk capital off the table. That's just one of, if not the key factor in the junior mining game is to be able to take those, those profits. Now, when things are really going well, like they were doing from say 2002 through 2008 uh, in a market like that, uh, it, your capital gains are almost like income. It's just streaming in, in their paper gains and they're not realized until you actually sell them. So I tell people they have to uh, almost religiously sell along the way and sell down big positions and just dip a ladle into that stream of capital gains. You know, my friend Rick Rule for a, a large portion of the time that I've known him was would sell something every day in general principle. He would force himself to sell something every day. Uh, and then of course, around 2015, I'd be talking to him and he would say, I'm buying something every day. And I'd never heard, really heard that from him. Um, and, you know, master probably the best of, of timing those cycles and the, the long-term highs and lows. But when things are rising in a rising market, you almost have to force yourself to sell a little bit of something every day because you're constantly reinvesting too. Brian, I'm sitting on some nice gains in my portfolio, but I've discussed with my wife and I said, I'm not selling shorter than 12 months because as you bring up in the US, we're taxed at ordinary income rates if we sell less than a year. 
more than a year, we have federal tax at about 20% plus our state tax, mine is four and a quarter for state. So like 25% if I, I'm taxed, if I sell more than a year. So I, that's that's my plan because that's less than if I was taxed at ordinary income. But I've listened to people that uh, speculate in small cap stocks beyond just the mining stocks say they've never, uh, pro the net to them was never more if they waited 12 months for a lower tax rate than if they had just sold when they thought it peaked out less than 12 months. Uh, what would be your insights here? I agree with the latter with your friends. It, it, when you're looking at a sector where you're, you're aiming for 100% or better returns, uh, and, and let's face it, when we invest in a junior mining stock, we're not hoping that, gosh, I hope this is up 15% by next year. You're looking for a double, a triple, or more. Uh, in over two years, you look, you're investing for the potential of a four or five bagger at least. So in, in light of those kinds of expectations and goals, uh, whether you're paying 25% or whether you're paying, you know, 35% or more for on, on taxes doesn't really enter into the equation. I mean, it it, it obviously has a big effect because the, the number, uh, the holding has grown that much in size, but the risk that you face um, for holding, when I mean, a lot of other people are probably thinking the same way, uh, you know, the whole tax loss selling thing argument at certain points in these cycles, it reverses because people are holding on till after till the new year to take their gains. So instead of having a, a drop in the end of the year, you're having a drop at the beginning of the year, or at least more selling pressure in the beginning of the year. So things kind of flip. And, and you really should look at every company on a case by case basis. Yeah, those are excellent points. Thank you. Uh, in your letter or, or in your personal investing, would you be able to or willing to share maybe a loss, a loser that you've had in the junior resource sector over the last year or so? Yeah, you know, when I look at that, uh, I the the losers are typically the exploration plays that that don't have that have disappointing news. Uh, the winners are typically the exploration plays, the biggest winners and the biggest losers. The biggest winners are the ones that have are the exploration plays that have unexpected or have good news. You know, and looking over the last year and considering stocks that I may have recommended in 2019 that move in 2020, one way or the other. Uh, my biggest losers were, I think, Mountain Boy, Mountain Boy Minerals and Pucara Gold, both of which had bad drill results. You know, high expectations going in, uh, but bad results, initial results. And in the case of Pucara, they were chasing a, you know, a world-class sized target. Um, I think both companies still have uh, a number of other good targets. I still own both of those. I did own them personally. And I think that they, they you know, I'm sticking with them for now. Perhaps a sign that I'm not a good seller, but I am sticking with them for now. Um, biggest winners over the last year were probably BlackRock Gold and Piedmont Lithium. BlackRock, I... Uh, Really liked the the story and uh, the target, and it proved up to be as good as they expected. And they developed more targets, and they they not only raised a good bit of money, but they're putting it right into the ground of multiple drills and and uh, producing a lot of news. And I think once silver plays get back in the limelight, and and I'm fairly confident they will, 
I think we'll see a big reaction in BlackRock Gold. Piedmont Lithium was a special situation. Um, I visited their project in North Carolina, really liked the story, recommended it in Gold Newsletter, had every intention of buying the stock. I did buy BlackRock, by the way. But Piedmont, I had every intention of buying the stock, but procrastinated, didn't have liquidity when I you know, had the desire. But I looked at it as a long-term development play. I have lots of time. Then they went and signed an offtake agreement with Tesla um, and stock quadrupled virtually overnight. And so, uh, you know, I missed out on that one, but hopefully my readers uh, did as I said and not as I did and bought into it and have enjoyed it. And it's actually advanced since then. I think it's a, still a very good play in the lithium space. In your newsletter uh, that you shared this pick uh, with your subscribers is goldnewsletter.com. So for listeners, my listeners that aren't familiar with you, what can they find there, please? Well, they'll find coverage of 30 to 40 different junior mining stocks every month. Yes, that's too much. It's hard for me to cut back on it because there are a lot of exciting stories out there. But you can glean from each issue which companies I'm the most excited about uh, and which ones have news coming up. So it is a very comprehensive coverage of the junior mining uh, share uh, universe, as it were. I also covered the, the big picture geopolitics, economics, all the drivers for uh, uh, gold and silver and therefore the mining stocks and uh, and really the drivers for the global economy at large. So big picture down to individual recommendations. And it's one of the best deals out there uh, in the market. Uh, 12 months monthly newsletter. I have a higher dollar service called the Gold Newsletter Alert Service. That's a weekly but gold newsletter itself, depending on what offer you buy it from, is anywhere from 100 to 200 dollars a year. So it's a great value and a great way to get exposed to what we do. And the website again is goldnewsletter.com, and a link to that will be in the show notes as well. Brian, really appreciate you coming on the show, and we'll be touching base in uh, several more months with you again. Great talking with you as always. Let's don't make it a full year. Let's uh, or, or however long it was since the last time. Let's talk more often. Sounds great. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10 for 1 returns as there is in small cap and micro cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. 
The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident. And just do your work as best you can. Do your very best. But don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents, but it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on MiningStockEducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.